Hi, it's Erica Kohlberg. And before we dive into today's podcast episode, I have an exciting announcement that can help you save an extra $1,000 without having to penny pinch or change your lifestyle. On Monday, I'm running my free five-day savings challenge where you'll discover simple and creative ways that you can save extra money every month. And whatever you want to do with that extra money is up to you. I'll just show you how to save it. The challenge is totally free to join. All you need to do is go to erica.com slash go. Erica is with a K and you can secure your spot. By the way, these strategies that you're going to discover can help you easily save money, whether you're a budgeting novice or a finance expert, and they're going to get better and better throughout the week. But I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this and don't want you to miss out. In November of last year, we ran a savings challenge and had over 200,000 people sign up. And on average, people saved $1,005 that month through what they learned in the challenge. That means our challengers collectively saved over $200 million. So trust me when I say you don't want to miss out on this one. And the deadline to sign up to be part of this free challenge is Sunday, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. So make sure you secure your spot and get free access today. Again, that's erica.com slash go, E-R-I-K-A dot com slash go. See you inside. When we started from zero to a billion and a half in less than a year, but it took us four years to just get enough people to say yes, to make it work. And there's just such a fear of taking risk or change. I mean, every day, honestly, you're battling with just a hundred no's. Rent prices are up 9% in the past year. Paying your rent with a credit card and earning points for those payments. So there's a company we found helping out renters. It's a credit card called Built Rewards. So joining me now is Encore Jane, who's the founder and CEO of Built Rewards. People think being an entrepreneur means starting a company. It doesn't. Let's talk about how to make money. At the end of the day, the challenge is Right? And if you can get that life hack, you can get double the value out of every dollar. That's as good as making double the income. You've built a $1.5 billion company in under a year. What is the most important trait that you have that led you to do that? When you think about building a company, you've got to have... You're listening to the Erica Taught Me podcast, the number one business podcast in the U.S., where we talk about entrepreneurship, money, and how to improve your life and achieve success. I'm your host, Erica Kohlberg. I'm a lawyer and personal finance expert with over 20 million followers on social media. Today, I'm interviewing Encore Jane, an entrepreneur, investor, and the CEO of Built Rewards. His company went from zero to having a $1.5 billion valuation in under a year. So for this episode, I really wanted to dig into the way he thinks. What does it take to be an entrepreneur? How do we build wealth? Whether you're thinking about building the next billion-dollar company or you're just trying to make your first $100,000, there's a lot of practical business and life advice in this episode that I know you'll enjoy. So let's not keep you waiting. I'm Erica Kohlberg. This is Erica Taught Me. And today, we're here with Encore Jane. You guys know that I love investing because you know that if your money is just sitting in a bank account, you're losing out to inflation every single year. That's why you invest it so that it grows for you without you having to put in any extra work. I've been using an investing app called Webull for almost four years, 
and I had them do something really special for my listeners. By using my link to sign up today, you can get between 6 to 12 fractional shares for free. All you need to do is open an account and deposit any amount, even a dollar, to claim your free shares. So just by depositing a dollar, you'll get between 6 to 12 free fractional shares. And if you're wondering what to actually invest in, we talk all about investing in episode 28. So go ahead and listen to that episode. To claim your free shares through my special link, just go to ericataughtme.com slash invest or click the link in the show notes. And it's Erica with a K. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash invest. I think you're the first person I've talked to where I can honestly say you've built a $1.5 billion company in under a year. What is the most important trait that you have that led you to do that? Being annoyingly relentless. <laughs> uh, I mean, the irony is like, when you think about building a company, you've got to have the right product to solve a real problem, obviously. You have to have the core business economics and all of that stuff. But what people don't talk about is it doesn't matter how good your idea is or how perfect the timing is, if you are not relentless at taking no, 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 over and over again and still being willing to come to the plate, it doesn't matter. That is the single most important trait that I have found in building any company because for whatever reason, the world likes to reject change. There is just such an inherent resistance to anything different. And so you have to literally will your idea into existence. It's, it's, uh, it's exhausting, but also fulfilling. What was the biggest barrier you had to overcome? The one that gave you the most resistance? Literally every single, I was up at midnight last night because our big launch of ours from this morning, at midnight, people got cold feet at our partners and wanted to cancel. The whole launch, six months of working on this, and there's just such a fear of taking risk or change. I mean, every day, honestly, you're battling with just a hundred no's. And the key has been like with a singular focus. I mean, like when we started, Built went from zero to a billion and a half in less than a year from launch. But it took us four years to just get enough people to say yes, to make it work. I mean, we thought, simple idea, right? God, if you could just pay your rent and be able to one day buy a home because you paid your rent. Like that should be the most non-controversial thing out there, right? You pay your rent, you get something back, you save it up and you put it towards a home. I thought that it was having the first six months, the hardest time in the world, pitching this to real estate owners who kept telling me what a dumb idea it was and no, no, no. And finally, when I thought I had it good, you know who called me and said, it's not allowed? My lawyer. <laughs> goes six months later goes oh by the way we're not actually sure that the regulations allow you to use points towards a down payment i go sorry what <laughs> first of all you didn't think to tell me this six months ago <laughs> and now you're telling me that you're not sure if the regulations allow me to use points towards a down payment what are you talking about and like it's those moments it doesn't matter how good the idea is doesn't matter what business you're going after we sat there and said, we have two choices. We can stop, we can pivot, right? I guess that's probably call that one choice, stop or pivot. Or we can decide to go relentlessly fight the fight and change the regulations. 
And like, if you really believe in it, that's the only way forward. And so we did. And we spent 18 months going down to Washington, D.C., meeting with every agency, every regulator. We had three White House cabinet members at one point helping us get through this. And we did it. And like, we got the regulations approved to be able to use points to help you buy a home. Um, but that was just like one of a thousand of those battles. How do you decide, though, if enough resistance means you need to pivot the idea versus you need to still keep bulldozing through? I think the answer is you have to do both, right? And so, you know, if you take a step back, I think one of the mistakes that schools teach and, like, business leaders and all these, like, inspirational kind of, like, people talk about is they always talk about setting goals. And I'm sure you've heard this a hundred times. The problem with setting goals is you're setting yourself up for failure because nothing ever goes as planned. And you set a goal, a pivot is failure, right? If you set the purpose, right, what is the problem you're trying to solve? There are a hundred different ways of getting to the same end goal. And so that's been the key. For us, the North Star has been really simple, which is our generation is spending more money on cost of living than any prior one. How do you take your biggest expense and help people get ahead? And like, there's a hundred different ways to accomplish that. But as long as we kept that purpose at the core, we knew that we would figure it out, right? Mm -hmm. and, and the business has pivoted and evolved in a hundred different iterations of small things, but the essence has stayed the same. Why did you care so much about that as your North Star? I mean, before Build, you yeah. were at Tinder, right? So I ended up, yeah. So <laughs> life is a funny way of, <laughs> of working, right? Like I... I started off like, I'm a good nerdy Indian boy. Like I learned programming like good when I was 10, 11 years old and started my first company, you know, building stuff. Like that's the stuff I love, building stuff, right? And, but I'll tell you like what really inspired this work comes down to just my, my growing up. I mean, I, I grew up with immigrant parents. So my parents moved to the US when they were in their 20s, right? My mom moved here for college. Uh, Indian family, grew up in Israel, traveling around for like her father was in the peacekeeping force. So she was always moving. My dad grew up in a poor village in India. And like, I, I can't even imagine <laughs> what it's like to grow up where you're studying on a dirt floor, thinking that one day you can come to this country, the United States, where there's a land of opportunity. And it's incredible. Like I watched growing up where they were still figuring out their career, they still didn't have much, and watching them go from nothing to just relentlessly working hard to build something for us as a family. And then as I graduated college, watching our friends and our generation, like, it's crazy how hard it is to get ahead. I mean, like, our friends do everything right. All the people that listen to your stuff, like, they're doing it right. They went to school like they were supposed to. They took out the student loans like you're supposed to. You got the job. And then you look at your balance at the end of every month in your bank account. And you're like, how the hell am I ever supposed to get ahead? Right? And that to me is like the most devastating thing that could possibly happen in this country is you lose that sense of if you work hard and you persevere that you can succeed. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the inspiration behind Built was can we just fix that a little bit? Can we help you hack it a little bit? Can we help you get a little more value so you can still do the things you want to do? You can still get ahead. You, know, you can still build your credit. You can still buy a home. Do you think that these people that you're talking about who are working so hard, but at the end of the month, the bank account does not seem to reflect it. 
Do you feel like your view of success is that anyone can work hard enough to find success? Or what is that equation for you of how to get success? Well, look, dude, success is a loaded word, whatever. But let's talk about how to make money. Right? <laughs> okay. So like, at the end of the day, the challenge is, yes, you have to figure out how to make more income. There's no question. But part of the problem is, again, you, it's, to look at that in isolation without looking at the costs. I mean, like, you're very successful. My fiance's working up, being so, but still, like, I look at it. And, like, at the end of the month, when you factor in rent and Uber rides and, like, you go out to the occasional dinner with friends and before you know it, it's out, it's gone. And so there is some trade-off, just how you think about that, but there is an element of being smart with, like, life hacking, right? Because there's, yes, you want to keep making more money, but half of that is just being really smart about the stuff like you advise everybody, right? And if you can get that life hack, you can get double the value out of every dollar. That's as good as making double the income, yeah. right? Yeah. As you were growing up and you saw your parents go from having very little as immigrants to becoming very successful in their businesses, what were you learning from them? What were kind of the biggest takeaways you got? One is relentlessness. I mean, it's tough. Like there was a point in our, like when we were kids, like my dad started, he left, left Microsoft. He had, that was his first kind of real job where he started to have some kind of progress, right? And then one day he decided he was going to leave and put it all on the line to start his own company. And I remember being at home and the fight with my parents at home. I mean, like, you know, they spent years finally getting a good job to have income and savings and he was going to leave and put all of their savings into a startup that he had never done before. Like, it was crazy. And then, you know, to their credit, my mom and dad teamed up. They worked together every day. There was no difference of like clocking in at nine to five. I mean, this was full commitment. Like at one point, you know, they had to sell one of the cars and my dad would like, you know, drop me off, then go to work and then drop my mom off. And that's how it took. And you know what? That willingness to do whatever it took to win, which sounds so cliche, but truly, I don't think people fully appreciate just how much you have to live what you preach, right? And what you believe in. Like he grew, I mean, you talk about built going from zero to billion and a half, like his company Infospace went from zero to 40 billion in three years, right? Jeez. And like you talk about, look, he went through the ups and downs like many of these companies back then, but like that took the most relentless perseverance in addition to having the right business and timing and all that stuff. Did your lifestyle change very drastically? It should have, <laughs> <laughs> but like having really cheap Indian parents <laughs> doesn't help. And I'll tell you like, you know, there was a, a, a kind of philosophy in our household growing up, even before he had made money, no expense was too great for education. This is really cliche. You know, this is like good Indian household, you know? It's like no expense. <laughs> It'll be required listening in school. <laughs> like no expense was too big for education. But anything else I wanted was like, I mean, candidly prepared me for the fights that I have every day today at my company. Like you have to get creative. And it, had to, it was that way growing up. Like, you know, I tell this story, which it's so embarrassing, but like, again, skinny, nerdy Indian kid, 11 years old. <laughs> learning programming, have a website, decided one day in seventh grade, got to be so cool to make the basketball team. <laughs> delusional, self-delusional. My height, my, I just, it's, it was a long stretch anyways, but I figured I'm at a private school, maybe small class, maybe I can <laughs> shove my way through. 
So I started watching some of the tryouts and whatever, and I realized like the key to making the team, if I could show that I could dunk a ball, they have to put me on the team. Now, keep in mind, that was like double my height. So it was practically not feasible, but I was determined to get there. And I saw this TV ad back then for these things called jump soles, which are essentially these plyometric shoes you'd put on your shoe and you would you know, do your plyometric workouts to increase your vertical leap. So I saw this online and I ran home and I was like, on the TV ad, and I ran home and I asked my parents to buy it. It was $100, right? They refused. And my parents, it was a tough thing. If, if you tried to pull, they will, I'll buy it myself with allowance money. The response was, great, and you can pay for your school too. I mean, <laughs> like, there was no getting around this with money. So I had to like, it's like, how in the world am I going to get these these vertical jump shoes to figure out how to get the ball and dunk it because otherwise I'll never make the basketball team and I'll never be cool in seventh grade. It was a whole stressful moment. And so I literally went home and I had this brilliant idea. I said, I have an idea. I had heard about companies advertising on websites. So I literally went to the Jump Souls website. I found the customer service number. Mind you, I had probably not hit puberty yet. So like we're talking squeaky voice and I called the customer service number. I'm like thinking about myself as an adult now on the receiving end of this, but I called and I go, hey, my name's Ankur Jane. I'd like to speak to the CEO, please. <laughs> I just like, and like first time they hung up on me and I called right back and like said, I'm the CEO of this website <laughs> and I'd like to talk to your CEO. And like eventually somehow I got put on the phone this guy who runs, I don't even know what it was, some fitness company that makes these like plyometric shoes. And I still, to this day, don't know if it was out of pity or if he actually thought my business pitch was a good idea, but I offered him three months of free advertising on my website (laughs) (laughs) if he would send me a pair of shoes. And so next week, I had a box come to the house and I proudly took it to my parents and tried it on. Moral of the story is you can solve any problem with creativity and enough persistence. Also, if you're Five foot four, you're not making the basketball team. So you didn't make grade. it. I didn't make the varsity Aww. basketball team, but it's I okay. but I did get uh, I did get my website, my first advertiser. My mom wouldn't let me join cheerleading. Cheerleading was like the way I thought I was going to be very cool too, and she was like, "No, cheerleaders don't study hard. You have to study." There you go. Meanwhile, like my fiance Erica, the other Erica, was like Miss Texas. Teen Texas cheerleader. She was like the cool kid. So now I'm just like <laughs> keeping up every day, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. So even when you were 11, 10 years old, you were already thinking very entrepreneurially. And yeah, but you know way. what it was? It wasn't even like, and this is where I think people think being an entrepreneur means starting a company. It doesn't. Being an entrepreneur just means solving a problem. And because entrepreneurs generally don't have access to resources. It just requires you to get really creative. And so if I was to summarize, you have relentlessness, but the second probably equally or second most important thing is how quickly can you identify the win-wins, right? Can you figure out a way to create a a true win-win? Everyone is so focused in deal-making on what do I get and how do I like negotiate? And the truth is like, if you took... 99% of deals. And you ask them, what are the three things that matter most to you? The three things that matter most to me. And had that honest conversation. People never had this. They think they need to like shield their cards and play it. The reality is, if you just ask, what are the three things that are most important to you? 
and I lay out the things most important to you. Realistically, there's usually two of the three are non-controversial, and one of them is where you're at odds. And the rest is almost like irrelevant. And if you can just focus on that one thing and figure out how to make that work, the rest is a win-win, right? They're getting all the things they want, you're getting all the things you want. And people forget that and they play it so coy, but look, even in the most simple level, this company probably just wanted to sell more <laughs> fitness equipment. And if they got free advertising for the cost of nothing, who cared? It was the cheapest cost of advertising they probably had. For me, it was life-changing, right? <laughs> it was a win-win. And so I think that same premise extrapolated out. I mean, like built has been the most complex version of that chessboard where you have to get win, 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 because there's real estate owners and airlines and banks and pro like, it's a lot of stakeholders. But at the end of the day, it's the same essence, right? Is can you find a way to make something genuinely a win-win for what you want mm -hmm. and what they want, right? And then can you be relentless enough to convince them <laughs> that it actually is worth doing what's good for them? <laughs> if someone comes to you with 10 different ideas for their startup and says, what do you think is going to be most successful? How are you analyzing those 10 ideas? Number one is the idea doesn't really matter if the person's the right person. Mm. <laughs> That's number one. What if they're the wrong person? Are you going to tell <laughs> them all 10 ideas are bad? <laughs> Honestly, then they're, 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 not everyone should be an entrepreneur. That's the truth. I shouldn't be a dancer. I'm not good at it. <laughs> Some people shouldn't be an entrepreneur. Like there's just that, that is the reality. Yeah. Right. I think for those who are willing and, and ready to really be entrepreneurs, the question is, it's actually not that hard. Like, the best ideas are the most obvious ideas. The best ideas are the simplest ideas. And the best ideas are ones that people actually need. Like if you ask 10 people, like, here's the idea. Would you use it? It sounds so silly, but that's probably your best barometer um, for is it the right problem you're solving? And, the, and I think one of the challenges as a founder is everybody wants to just say, oh, yeah, that sounds good. Like, love your idea. Everyone loves to be supportive. Then you ask them to take their wallet out. Bingo. And that's exactly it. Yep. The minute you say, great, will you be my first customer? Well, it's not really for me, but I could imagine why other people would want it. Like, that's your first risk red flag. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what everyone should do with their 10 ideas. Go collect money for all 10 and see where you get the most money. And honestly, sometimes I wonder when you hear these ideas, like, do you actually believe that's a problem? Or are you just doing it because you heard some VCs investing in it? Mm -hmm. Right? And like, there's nothing more toxic than like traditional venture capitalists. Like you go to Silicon Valley, these guys haven't run companies. They're just, they're middlemen and money. And the problem is they're chasing the latest hype cycle. And the reason that's dangerous is like, whatever, they can do what they want to do. But for the entrepreneur, people start thinking that in order to raise money, I have to say I'm a AI company or this company or whatever, instead of asking yourself, what problem am I solving? Mm -hmm. And like, it's funny, I was just having this conversation last night at dinner with a, another entrepreneur who's just a really smart, smart guy building something. And we were just breaking down like what we see as like almost two different archetypes, right? And you have these deep domain technology experts who are really good at what they do and they just are gonna be the best at building. And you'll see a lot of that in like artificial intelligence, a lot of that in these other spaces. And those folks are like, they're just technologists who are going to build. And you wanna bet on those guys, right? And then you'll see this archetype, call it like the Bezos or Elon archetype, where I actually don't think like Elon is a true deep technologist, but he's one of the best pattern matchers, right? And I think that is a, 
the ability to walk into a meeting, synthesize information, figure out possibilities and the win-wins is a really powerful skill. Which one, which type are you? Of the two, I'm definitely probably more of a pattern matching type (laughs) than a deep technologist type. Although I love geeking out on the deep technology. (laughs) (laughs) You were saying the other night you spent like two hours with chat. I know, it's so embarrassing. I I have been trying to learn complex new technologies for a while now, like how exactly chips on a computer convert electrical signals into zeros and ones and how it knows what to do with it. And it sounds so boring, but it was fascinating to me. And I've been trying to ask all these smart people who like say all these smart things and I smile and nod as if I understand what they're saying. And I went home one day and I don't know why I was bored on a Sunday and I just like asked ChatGPT, the new AI platform. I was like, can you explain to me how, you're, how you understand zeros and ones? And all of a sudden it started explaining this to me in like English that I could understand. <laughs> I spent two hours studying and learning how chips were started from the early days through what the kind of complex specialized chips we have today and then how that converts into similar DNA computing. It was the coolest, coolest experience. And I think, honestly, taking that back just for a second, I do think there's an element of intellectual curiosity that drives this archetype that's really important for entrepreneurs, which Mm. is to be pattern matching, you have to just be genuinely curious because that gives you enough exposure to then figure out how to match patterns Right? And I think you know, one of my favorite quotes my dad always says is, you know, great ideas and the best innovations are not thinking outside the box. Thinking outside the box means you've already decided this is the limitations, this is the way of doing it. For us, it was, hey, you earn rewards on here rather than solving the homeownership problem with you know, all these government entities and nonprofits and all of that. Could we just take the same concept that works in travel and apply it to housing? Right? And I think that's, again, often the best ideas are the simplest ideas. (laughs) If you're listening, let me guess. You have a passcode on your phone. And let me take another wild guess and say that you have a password on your computer. But why are so many of us okay just being completely unprotected online? We have no idea who has all our personal information online and whether it's the good guys or the bad guys who might be selling your information or worse. We're talking spammers, telemarketers, robocallers, people who want to know more about you and even where you live. My sister had her data leaked online and because of that, her identity was stolen and it was a nightmare to deal with. We had to lock down all her credit cards just for starters. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Aura, a sponsor of this episode. Aura can identify data brokers exposing your info and submit opt-out requests on your behalf. When I discovered it, I knew I had to try it out just to see if my information had been leaked online, which they let me see instantly after I signed up. And get this, for my audience, they're offering a free 14-day trial so you can see if your personal information has been leaked online. To find out now, go to ericataughtme.com aura to claim your free 14-day trial. Erica with a K and Aura is spelled A-U-R-A. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash Aura. And I'll also leave the link in the show notes. Are you the kind of entrepreneur where if you have an idea, you're going to hide it from others? Or are you the one to like share it right away and get feedback? 1000% share ideas and get feedback and iterate. So like, it's embarrassing. I don't remember my cell phone when I was just looking for it, but like, it's embarrassing how many people I text in a day 
But even more embarrassing is that 90% of it is going, hey, what do you think of this? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm shocked people still respond to me, but like, that's the only way you quickly gut check like what's going on. I mean, like, you, people think that like ideas are the secret sauce. I mean, hopefully the one takeaway from this conversation so far is like, ideas are kind of a dime a dozen. Most of them are bad. Some of them are good. None of that matters, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so if you've got the right feedback loop, you can iterate fast enough to then get it right. And then you out-execute with relentlessness and you just figure out how to, you know, all the other business metrics like distribution and all of that that matter. No, I almost think it's comical when I've had a few people come to me wanting to share their ideas. They want me to sign an NDA first. And I'm like, I'm absolutely not signing that. If yeah. that is your focus, totally. I think you're focused on the wrong thing. 100%. I mean, at that point, if you're worried that someone who's already got a busy day job is going to beat you because they didn't sign an NDA, you're in trouble, right? And I think, look, we're talking at a very high level. There are a lot of tactical things on starting a company and how to build a business, whether it's a small business or a large business that are really important. Like, you have to think about how you create a you know, network effect. How do you create a defensible moat? Like, it's not just having a good product. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Silicon Valley has this like vision of build a great product and they will come. It's just not how it works. Like, the hardest thing in the world, so tech, by the way, is a mature market now. You know what I mean? Like, we grew up thinking tech was different and new. And it was true. Like, there was a time, I'll never forget, I had the chance to have dinner with the CEO of Alibaba 10 years ago, back when they were just starting. And I was asking him how they beat eBay so badly in China. I mean, eBay had such a head start, right? And there was two things he said that stood out to me. One is he said, Number one, eBay spends so much time worrying about their competitors, they don't focus on the customer. He goes, I do not want to hear, I don't want competitive research, I don't want to hear what eBay does. If they do anything that matters to me, my customer will tell me, eBay's doing this, why aren't you? Mm. <laughs> and that stuck with me. Like, I do not want my team at Built sending me a bunch of comp reports to other products because it's just a bunch of noise. Like if the customers care about something, they'll tell us, right? You just don't yeah. listen. That was one that really stuck out. But two, which was a symbol of a different era was he said, eBay sure had 90% market share of all the internet users in whatever year that was, right? When they first started. But every year that total market was growing by 20%. And I was owning 90% of all the new users, mm. <laughs> right? And you can do that in a massive technological platform shift era, which comes around not very often, right? But for right now, at least, tech is largely a mature market. We have our, we have our version of the GEs <laughs> and IBMs. They're just called Google and Microsoft, right? Yeah. And so I think we have to treat it differently. And in a market where it's mature and you have incumbents, things like distribution and customer acquisition matter as much as your idea. Yeah. And that's oddly not something you hear talked about in the first two to three minutes of any good pitch is what is your distribution? <laughs> you know? The customer thing is so interesting though, because I remember obviously Jeff Bezos for Amazon was always saying customer first, customer first. Totally. And I remember my mom became a customer of Amazon. She loved books in 1996. Incredible. And her thing to me was- I like, should just invest in anything your mom told me. <laughs> <laughs> I know. She told my dad. She'll never <laughs> stop talking about that. But, and she was saying, you know, this Amazon, they're amazing because if a book comes and I don't like it, I can return it. No problem. Right. That stuck with me. It's like- Huge. That really. was his one thing that he was going for That's to right. make the customer happy and look at where they are now. 100% right. 
And look, there's obviously, as you and I both know, like there's a hundred other things that play into it. But if you don't have that, none of the other stuff matters, right? And I think that customer obsession is something people talk about. And I get it's really easy to let that go because you justify these short-term changes. You go, well, let's just do this because it'll drive the, the monthly or quarterly results to show to our investor, and then we'll go back to that. Like, or hey, like it'll just get us a good press hit if we just do this, and then we'll go back to it. And every time you do that, that little paper cuts, <laughs> next thing you know, you're not a true customer-focused company. Um, and it's hard, and this is why it's so important as an entrepreneur, as much as you can, to try to avoid taking venture capital money and other stakeholder involvement too early because you start to focus on pleasing those stakeholders instead of focusing on the customer. Mm. When did you take on money and then wh- how, what made you decide yeah. that it was the right time? I'll tell you, like, at my first company out of college, I thought it was all about raising venture capital money. I mean, we were like, that was the game. It was a sign of success. It was validation for your business. Like, and we did, and we like went out and raised the marquee names and all the stuff. And I mean, looking back, you can see it. It was, it became about how do you raise the next round and get the next valuation? And we, and we hadn't even figured out our core product yet, right? And like, I turned to these venture capitalists listening to their advice as if like they knew everything because you look at these guys and they see, they, they claim to know it all, right? And then, you know, the advice one day was, don't worry about revenue. It's all about user growth. And then the market changed. Oh, my God, you guys don't have profitability. You're focused on growth. Like, that doesn't work. And you've seen that cycle now three times. <laughs> well, it was just tough. So at my, at, at my first, like, real company out of college, like, that was the metric of success. Was like, all right, what is, the, what is the round you've raised? And look, I get it. There's an element of external validation it gives you as a business, which is really helpful. But... If you do it too early, if you take venture capital money too early, in my opinion, you get yourself on this rat race where you're focusing on all the wrong metrics because you're not able to take the time to get the right product market fit and the right distribution model. And so, look, starting a company takes money, but it is so important, if you can, to try to bring in truly strategic capital. Everyone likes to say it's strategic, but like, who are your partners and who are your customers? Can you raise money from them? I always loved Kickstarter. I thought that was one of the best models for true alignment with your customers because the people giving you money are the people who want your product the most, right? If you have any sort of commercial relationships required for your business, for us, it was real estate owners, like bring them in with you because they're aligned with your success. And I can't tell you like, $50,000 $50,000 investment from a strategic partner carries more of its weight in gold than any amount of money you could pay them because there's an emotional owner connection that they have in your idea now. And that helps you arbitrage your growth like none other. I mean, the number one thing I'll say is, do you need money? Yes or no. If you don't, wait until you've figured out some of the stuff so you don't have the pressure to show fake results. And that's what happens. A lot of these entrepreneurs, the reason you see so much of these Theranoses of the world is because people feel this fake pressure to hit these numbers and these metrics and show the growth because you're not going to get your next round unless you show this crazy growth. And like VCs love to see these perfect graphs and they don't understand how hard it is to get it right. 
once you get it right and you have the engine working, you can then leverage because you're raising money on your terms and doing it your way. But in the early days, ask, do you really need it? And two, can you take money from people who actually are your commercial partners? Are they your business partners? Are they your distribution partners? Are they your customers, right? And if you do that, you're actually adding value to the business by taking money and solving your kind of cash needs. And you've very much done that, where you've only taken money once it was necessary from strategic we, partners. I mean, to be clear, like I was even too scared for this time around. Cause look, that's, that hit us. Like we, we were like this darling, my first company I call it darling company, but we'd never built the proper business model. Cause the venture capitalist told me, focus on growth, do what Facebook did, grow, grow, grow. Right. And then like all of a sudden the market started to turn and you know, we didn't have a proper business model because we were so focused on those wrong metrics. Right. And like, we got really lucky in that, like that business could have died. And just the timing where we got acquired, like that was luck, right? That one was acquired by Tinder. That was acquired by yeah, IAC and Tinder. And then I ended up going in. It wasn't supposed to be for dating, but ended up in a dating world and then started, you know, running product to Tinder. And that was a whole other crazy experience we could spend some time on. But like the biggest thing for me on this company coming out of Tinder was I wanted to get it right and control our own destiny. Right. And so like, we didn't even hire anyone. I just worked on it myself for a year before I even brought the first person on because I wanted to make sure I had some, I just met with every real estate owner, tried pitching the idea, saying like, hey, I'm building this and seeing how they reacted. And one by one, everyone just kept telling me how stupid it was. And they were right at the time, <laughs> but like it helped me shape the model. Then we started raising like family and friends, like from like, you know, just the people we trusted to not bother us, <laughs> but support us. And we got a little bit further. I started building a team, a little team, very lean. And then we brought on strategic partners. And that was when we knew we had the right product. But now we needed to get distribution. So for us, it was bringing in real estate partners as owners in the business. Everything changed from there. I mean, like, that was the secret sauce to then opening up the market. And it was incredible. And then since then, like, to this day, you know, we work with almost every major real estate owner and operator and they use built and they love built because they're both an owner and a partner, right? And a user. And so that is like the secret sauce. Um, so I just, as much as you can, like a avoid taking money <laughs> and you, by the way, you make more money, the more of the company you own. Yep. Right? <laughs> I mean, it sounds like such an obvious thing to say, but again, common sense is in common sometimes, right? Like we all get sucked into the machine of wanting to have the Sequoia name on your company and uh, it doesn't really, at the end of the day, you're the only one on the hook yeah. to grow the company. I want to rewind then. So that first company that sold to Tinder, did you make money on that? Very little. I, that, it was one of these things where like, we got, again, I just credit this to luck, right? Like we didn't make any really at the time, but we got it. There was, a, it was an equity acquisition and we didn't know what Tinder was going to be at the time either. But you know what? Like, Life has a funny way of working itself out. And not only did I get an incredible experience, but, you know, we grew Tinder into the time when I left. It was, we sold it for $3 billion. And so that ended up becoming uh, an, an exciting opportunity, but it wasn't, it wasn't a given. So that was how you made your quote-unquote first million was from the sale. Not, uh, not of your company, but once Tinder. Well, it was in equity version, but it wasn't cash yeah. until... Yeah. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. And so then you left right away and that's when you start, started built. So no, at that point we said, okay, this time around, 
I really want to know what is the problem I'm solving. Let's be a little bit more thoughtful about this. And so we, we I mean, it, this, this problem was so close to home. I mean, so many of my friends at that, we were 27, 28. We were living in San Francisco at the time. And like, it was crazy. Like my ex at the time was like still saddled with student loans. I mean, she was like a successful, like in her business and whatever. And like, it was so frustrating to see the number of our friends that were dealing with this. And I just had my first thing and I was lucky to have obviously some backing. And still you look at this, it's crazy. Like it's no wonder everyone is like trying so hard to find any way, any inch you can get to get ahead because you're getting squeezed everywhere. Like your rent, your Uber, there's a new fee on my like ride sharing app every day, right? And so finding a way, the thesis was, all this other fluff in Silicon Valley, the like whatever buzzword at the time, right? At the end of the day, people still spend their money on housing, healthcare, transportation, groceries, right? Like, and that was Bezos' whole insight back in the days. Like, people are going to read books. They read it a thousand years ago. People will read books a thousand years from now. It may be digital. It may be implanted in your brain. Who knows? But the same behaviors exist. And so we said the next big thing we want to solve is taking these markets where people spend most of their money that are clearly broken and just fixing it to work in the interest of the consumer, right? There's no other consumer product space. Like if you're building a consumer product, where else do you charge more every year, but your product gets worse the more you charge? Like that's crazy. People would revolt. But yet when it comes to these costs of living, you just like people assume they have no choice. You pay more in rent and you get less. You pay more for groceries, you get less. You pay more for healthcare, you get less. Like it's Flights, crazy. I cannot believe. Travel, transportation. Travel like, right now. It's insane. And I honestly, I don't even know who is the people affording this anymore because it's gotten so crazy. And like, thank God for the points and miles world. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it is, uh, it's amazing to me how much these industries sit there and even when people try to fix it, they focus on optimizing it for the industry incumbents, not the consumer. <laughs> How do you think about risk? Obviously, when you started this build, you had enough of a financial cushion from your yeah. previous successes that you were okay taking the risk and maybe not making a lot of money for a long time. How should others be thinking about risk? If they have an idea that they love, but they are still working a nine to five making minimum wage. First question, how much do you believe in yourself? Number one. Because then you ask yourself, what's riskier? Putting your life, your income, your, what, your significant other's income, your kids, your family, in the hands of some guy you barely know who's your boss, or yourself, <laughs> right? <laughs> and like, you know what? For some people, the answer may be, you feel safer having your future in the hands of somebody else. And that's totally fine. <laughs> but if you say to yourself that I would rather trust myself, <laughs> then it's not really a question. <laughs> then it's just a matter of what you're doing. Right? Yeah. And you go out there and build a small business. Do you, do you build a technology company? Do you go create your own like online e-commerce store? I mean, there's a hundred ways to do it. Um, do you create your own podcast? But like, these are important questions to answer. Um, but I don't know, like people talk about risk all the time. Like I think entrepreneurs are the most risk averse people. Like I spend all my day thinking about how to minimize risk. <laughs> like, you know, you're just doing it in a way that others perceive as like other people think that what I do is risky. I think that what they do staying in their jobs at companies that I don't think are that interesting or doing that well is more risky, <laughs> you know? Or for bosses you don't like, or bosses really don't you don't like. believe in. Right. I agree with that. I think you should always look at the people who are above you and see if you really want to be them in 10 years, 
Or if you want to be their boss in 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) Or if you'd fire them. (laughs) What is the most ethical way to do it? (laughs) I recently went on an anniversary getaway with the husband and it was beautiful. Here's everything I got for free. We got free business class tickets for an international flight, which meant, yep, you guessed it. I got free access to the lounge where we could kick things off with a glass of champagne. Then we got a free stay at a five-star hotel where we could relax and go to the beach. Okay, so now I'm sure you're wondering how I got it for free, and you know I don't gatekeep, so here's the insider knowledge you need to know. I did it by signing up for a free built credit card. Built is a credit card that lets you earn points just for paying your rent, and there's no extra fee. And when I say free, I mean free. There's no annual fee for the credit card, and they don't charge a transaction fee for paying your rent with the card. You'll also earn two times the points on travel and three times the points on dining. Once you get your points, you can transfer them to travel partners like airlines and hotels to then get the free business class flights or five-star hotels like I did. To sign up for this card, go to ericataughtme.com slash built. Erica is with a K and built is B-I-L-T. Or to make it easier, go to the link in the show notes. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash built. I mean, the truth is like, there's, there's casino capitalism, which is gambling, okay? And I think like, there are people who make money gambling, right? I think crypto is a gamble, right? And I think that's, there are people that like to do it and it's chasing the quick rich. I'm not saying you have to like, whittle away your days and never, but you got, it is hard to make money, right? And anybody who tells you otherwise is full of shit. And so I think the question again is like, you have to, look, at the end of the day, like it's hard to really make money on income, right? That's the truth. You have to have some element of equity and equity can come from investing. Equity can come from working at places. Equity can come from building something on your own. But like that is really the only way to create any sort of real wealth. And look, it sounds, people forget, home ownership is equity, right? It's why it's one of the most important determinations of generational wealth in this country. It's why we spent a lot of time saying, how do I make it easy for young people to buy, actually be able to afford and buy a home, right? Because it's crazy. Otherwise, how do you deal with that? What else do you get that kind of generational? Now look, home is not for everybody, right? But it's a form of equity. And so if it's not home ownership, you should find another way to get equity, right? Again, whether it's investing in the stock markets, um, building your own company, working at a company where they can give you equity. I think those are really important things to think about. Yeah, because then people are working for you, essentially. That's what equity means. You're you're an owner. Or you're working for yourself. You're an owner. You know what? Like, that's really important. I think that is the key. Like, you don't have to be a majority. I'm not a majority owner of Built. We have investors that own the majority of our company today, right? Much further along now. But like... I still own a company. Everyone who works for me owns a part of the company, right? They're owners. (laughs) And I think that is so important, at least for the, what I believe is the future success of everyone I work with. And and I think for anyone out there, the question is like, is what you're doing giving you a path to one day, even if not today, right? Investing in yourself as equity to get external equity also is a thing. Can you get equity in whatever it is that you're doing? Otherwise, you're living on a, on a really tough paycheck to paycheck. And look, you make more cash. The reality is your expenses also go up, right? Because your lifestyle goes up. And so everyone always says, you know, 
I remember one of the funny stories one of my dad's friend tells me is when he was probably 25, this is back when he was like new to the country and they were still living in an apartment with like, you know, multiple people sharing a room because they couldn't afford rent. He goes, he goes, somebody had sold a company for like $150,000. And he literally goes, if I ever make a $100,000 like sale, I'm done. <laughs> I'm retiring. <laughs> I'm good. Like, you know, $40 billion company later, it's a very different story. Just that your stakes go up, the expenses go up, things change. So, you know, you have to have equity in order to create that kind of wealth beyond the cash flow. That's so funny that you said the $100,000 because I vividly remember when I was maybe like 13, 14, my uncle told me, if I ever win $100,000 in the lottery, I'm quitting my job and retiring forever. Yeah. That's the lucky number. <laughs> you know, until it isn't. <laughs> yeah, until it isn't. <laughs> so I think it's really just important. Like, you got to know what you're trying to solve for. And I think... Uh, and I think at that point, you can really build, build wealth by thinking, again, if you're solving for wealth, how do you have ownership? And there's a, again, a lot of different ways to get that, but it is a critical component to getting ahead. What's something as an entrepreneur that you, in your past, believed you were absolutely correct about that now, looking back, you were wrong? The best product wins. Um, it's just not the case. Like, you have to have a great product. The best product doesn't mean you win, right? One, because like I said, it doesn't matter how good the idea of the product is, the amount of resistance to new things requires creativity and relentlessness to push it out. I mean, I literally, I sometimes think like, you are truly like willing ideas into the world, right? Like art, entrepreneurs are kind of like artists in a weird way, like not, and we're not as cool and we can't do things like that, but like everything in this room was created by somebody, right? Who literally imagined it and willed it into existence, which is a cool, cool thing to think about, right? But to actually make that happen, you have to be relentless with it. Do you think people who don't want to become entrepreneurs can build uber wealth or no? Like I said, ownership, equity. There's a lot of ways to get equity without starting your own company, right? I think it's a really important thing. And, you know, I was watching, uh, you watched the Hassan Minaj, Kevin O'Leary interview the other day? No. It's, uh, it's a, it was an interesting 30 minute. It was one of the most fierce debates I've actually watched in a really intellectual way for both sides. It was quite fascinating. But like, I think the one takeaway is like, look, different types of equity, you can bet on a startup, high risk. You should really think twice before doing it. But even just putting your money in markets, really valuable. Right? I mean, that's a equity base. You're betting on a country, right? The economy. Uh, ownership in a home is equity. There are a lot of people, think about it, like, I mean, it was very different in our grandparents' generation, but like, they were in the United States, they could buy a house for like $30,000. It was psycho, <laughs> you know? Uh, but those people, have, some of the people have like made millions of dollars from just owning that equity in that home, right? And you can own equity in a company you work at. Right? You can own equity and ideas that you then sell to people. I mean, there's so many ways, but I think people tend to focus on just income. And I would say there's no question that income is the first priority because you have to pay for life, <laughs> obviously. But if you want to create wealth, you got to ask yourself, how am I building ownership? Um, and whatever it is. One of the things that 
I think is most incredible about you is you are the most brilliant networker I've ever met. And I remember being in college and law school and you ask these people 10 years ahead of you, like, what is your best advice for me? And they were like, Erica, go learn how to network. And it's like, what, what is networking? How do I learn how to do it? So what's your advice for networking? How did you become such a good networker? So I have always hated the idea of networking. So like, I'll answer this in a very weird way and then I'll come back, I promise. <laughs> so there was, uh, you ever have like people that show up in your life who you kind of feel like are these like pivotal moments that change, you know, like these weird random conversations, you meet someone, you talk and it's like this. So there was two of those moments for me that I can point to. One, when I was 17, after I graduated high school, I had this incredible opportunity to go work for the former U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff who ran the U.S. military. He had moved to Hong Kong and he was now working, leading a lot of U.S.-China relations, but also private equity and foreign policy. I mean, it was just, this is one of the most impressive, you know, leaders I've ever come across. And I had the opportunity to basically go be like his chief of staff for, you know, a, a few months. And so I flew to Hong Kong, I'm 17, and I can't tell you the experience that I had. Like, I'll never forget, there was a period of 24 hours where they woke me up at 4 a.m. We walked out, we had to get on a plane. We flew that morning to Seoul in South Korea. We met with the chairman of LG, met with the prime minister, flew to Beijing, had lunch, uh, or like a late lunch. And then that night got back super late and the admiral had a meeting with the governor of Hong Kong. I mean, it was one of these like days that you're like, how is this possible to do in one day? And it was late night and we were walking through IFC Mall, which is like this big downtown Hong Kong. And we were going down the escalator and I remember looking at the Admiral and I was like, it is so amazing to me how you know everybody. <laughs> I mean, like <laughs> you have so many friends everywhere. It's like incredible, you know, everyone, like, I can't believe it. Like here I am an excited 17 year old, like, you know, oh my God, one day I want to be able to do that. And he looks at me and he goes, in a deep voice, like deep military, you know. And he goes, Encore, are you prepared for a very lonely life? I go, what? That is so not what I was talking. He goes, he goes, Encore, the truth is when you get to this stage and this level of, of things, you really only have three or four close friends that you can count on that are there, that you can trust. And, and that's just the reality. And I hope you're prepared for that. And I... Was, I sat there a little bit in shock. And I remember saying, probably naively, you know, but I said, well, you know what, Admiral, like, you may be right, but I think I'd rather get here with my friends <laughs> than here all by myself. Um, and from that moment on, like, everything that I tried to do and build, like, you spend every waking minute as an entrepreneur working on the thing you care about. And yet people pick people to work with based on their resume, not who they want to be their lifelong friends, <laughs> mm. which is the weirdest thing. This is, you spend more time, people you're building something with than your significant other. And so since then, everything I've done from like the first thing I started in college through to the first company after college, through to my time at Tinder and still to this day at Bill, it's like the first question I ask when I meet people is like, are you the kind of person that like I want to be friends with, that I can spend time with, that is intellectually curious the same way I am, that wants to share experiences the same way I do? Because like that's what life's about, right? Yeah. Everything's about 
it's, you have a bunch of memories and experiences and then you die. <laughs> so like, you know, can you share those with people you enjoy? And honestly, like that has been my approach. There are lots of incredible people that are very successful that like probably aren't people that I'd care to meet. <laughs> right. <laughs> but there are just, there does tend to, I think this was kind of the inadvertent thing. I found that there was a lot of just smart people who tend to hustle and achieve are also the kind of people I enjoy spending time with. And so I think a lot of the network I built was a little accidental in just finding people that I wanted to be surrounded by to do cool things with and build great things with. And I've been lucky that throughout that journey, sometimes I've been able to help bring them along. And times when I was struggling, they helped bring me along. And, you know, like we're still young. I'm just turned 33. Like I'm still nowhere close to the Admiral and where he was. And we'll see if I can keep making it there with everybody. But I think that is, um, been a core principle and how I ended up inadvertently uh, building a lot of these relationships. Let's get even more granular though. There's yeah. a 20 year old out there listening about to graduate from college yeah. and they're told, go network, go network. Like how practically do you do it? I get that we have to surround ourselves with people. I mean, you don't, you, you, I'm telling you, like you network by finding people with shared passion and shared interests, truly. Now, if you care, there's obviously value in the relationship. The question is how you do it and what you're, the types of people you're being surrounded by. So number one is like, how do you meet someone? And two is how do you have a relationship? I guess I started backwards, which is it doesn't matter who you meet. If you can't see them as someone that you would be friends with, it's not even worth trying to network with them because you'll never build an authentic relationship. It just doesn't work, right? And people see through it and they don't care and you don't care. And it's, you might have their phone book, but you can get anyone's email today. Can email anybody. That's not the hard part, right? Yeah. So the question is, that's the relationship question. Getting in a room with someone, that is a tactical skill set, right? And I think that's probably where you're going with this. Yes. Which is, how do you get in a room? And I think one of the most undervalued, especially when you're young, you're, we were talking about it the other night. First of all, when you're a student, that is your best platform. To this day, one of the biggest legs up I had is I started meeting amazing, inspirational people as a student because just things I was interested in, I would just email them to get together and learn. <laughs> and like, it's amazing. And so one thing that you say is when you're a student, you have a platform. If you're really savvy about it as a student, you should create a platform within that, right? <laughs> you created this really clever idea of an award that you gave on behalf of the students. Who doesn't want an award on behalf of students, right? It's an amazing way to meet people. For me, we created the first incubator at universities and said, we have the smartest young people help us build these companies. And we found people who cared about entrepreneurs, but we were able to meet some of these incredible leaders. And like, that was one of the best platforms I ever had, right? And people underestimate the value of a platform and the value of being a student. And so yeah. by the time you graduate, you're just another person looking for a job, right? So number one is let's say before you even graduate, leverage that. If you've already graduated, you're not, it's not a lost cause, you know, think about, again, what is the platform you have? And if you can find a platform and create an experience for people, like that is the one thing we all crave. Again, we are living for experiences, right? That is what we do. Everything we work towards is for some sort of an experience, right? And so if you can help create experiences where people that have shared interests and shared value are equally as attracted to that kind of moment. Some people do that through events, right? Some people do that through dinners. Some people do that through trips. Some people do it through like book clubs, whatever it might be. I know it sounds corny, but like there's a lot of value into bringing, using a platform like that 
to attract the people to get them in the door. And then if it's an authentic relationship where you share experiences, you're going you're gonna to be able to call that person five years from now and they'll still pick up the phone, right? Um, if it's a type of relationship where you have to force CRM check-ins, the email reminders in order to stay relevant, like, it just it doesn't work. And just to give people context, we, Encore and I had dinner a few nights ago and I was telling him when I was a student at Georgetown Law, there was this Georgetown Law alum named Chris Saka who you may know from Shark Tank. He was this billionaire investor and I really wanted to talk to him. So I thought, how could I access someone like that? And I founded the Georgetown Law Entrepreneurship Club and made up the Georgetown Law Entrepreneur of the Year Award. And so then it's like, okay, how do I let him know that he's won my Georgetown Law Entrepreneur of the Year Award? So I tried every different combination of chrissaka at gmail.com, like chris.saka at gmail.com, everything I could possibly do. And everything bounced except for one email. And then a few days later, he, his assistant messaged me and said, oh, Chris is honored to accept this award. And so I got on a call with him and it was life-changing because that was, he was the first person who told me, hey, just because you went to law school, doesn't mean you can't be an entrepreneur. Use the legal degree to get your foot into the door. People are going 100%. to assume things about you, assume you're smart, you're qualified, but use that to get your foot in the door and do whatever you want with it. So it's exactly. life-changing. It's incredible. And that is a perfect story of how to leverage the platform you have as a student. And again, it's a combination of, like that's the best example because you're both a student and you created a platform that aligned with what your interests were, which is about entrepreneurialism. Right. And you found a way to attract people like Chris Saka who share the interests you do and build that relationship. Right. And I think that's just there's so many ways to do that for people. And I just think people wait and they assume you have to like, you know, I don't know, go to conferences and shake hands and give business cards. And like it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. And I think something I've that you've set up quite a bit now is just getting comfortable with the no, no, no's and being relentless and persistent. That's what I realized too, is no one's going to come and open that door wide open for you. You have to like go knock on it <laughs> to get there. I mean, knock, kick, scream. <laughs> but it's like, it really is like, it's amazing to me how the problem is it's a little bit of a perverse incentive structure in, in these existing incumbent systems, right? Where People aren't rewarded, unfortunately, in those large organizations for taking risks or trying different things. Doing so just exposes them to risk. Mm -hmm. And so you have to just imagine when you're trying to bring, doesn't matter how good your idea is, they're taking a bet not just on you, they're putting their own job, at least in their mind, on the line. And that's why it's so hard to push things through. Uh, and even for a consumer, like changing a habit is hard right? Yeah. And that requires that consistent, relentless persistence. But again, I'll say there's persistence and relentlessness where you're just banging your head on the same wall over and over again. And there's creative relentlessness where no just means ask again differently. Mm -hmm. a slightly different change, a slightly different approach, a slightly different person you're asking, right? That's the key, right? It's doing the same thing over and over again. It's, that's get the same result. <laughs> Definition of insanity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's the big door that you've been knocking on and it still hasn't opened for you and you're going to find a creative way around it? I mean, it's just, honestly, it's, it's, it's not these big things. It's every little thing, right? It's every day there's a new thing. And like, you know, I, I don't have a great answer for you because it's just like, I feel like I'm overwhelmed honestly, all the time <laughs> with the amount of knocking and banging I'm doing every day and night. But so is, so is every other entrepreneur, right? And that is, 
Um, people love to think about the one big thing. And look, regulation change was a big thing. But, you know, today it's a small part of our thing. Right? That's the irony of the whole thing, right? So every time you break down one door, there's 10 more <laughs> that you got to go through. And so um, it's only worth it really if you feel really passionate about what you're solving. Otherwise, it's not worth it. And I think this goes back to the same theme throughout everything, right? Whether it's networking or whether it's building a company, what is the purpose? <laughs> What are you looking to achieve? As you're building your team, obviously you want to surround yourself with people you enjoy being with, but what other things tactically are you thinking about? So number one, I want people who understand that the quickest way to get fired is by telling me it's not possible. I cannot stand that. No people and not possible people should never walk into my, my office. It Have just, you hired lawyers? Uh, so I'll tell you, <laughs> When I hear lawyer, I cringe generally <laughs> because again, wrong incentives, right? And I think the best lawyers, like what you do today with your content is, tell me how to do what I need to do. Don't tell me why I can't do it, mm. right? And like, that is the most invaluable resource you can have, right? And you want a team who's there to tell you, here's how you can achieve it. And by the way, it may not always be the right decision and it may not be worth it. And so I always say like, if we want to go to Mars, tell me how we could do it, what it's going to take, how much it's going to cost, and what the risks are and trade-offs are so we can decide. Maybe it's worth it, maybe it's not. Probably not worth it right now, you know? <laughs> but like that type, of, this, that type of framework and discussion is how you create a growth culture. It is scary to me. One of the things that petrifies me is seeing how many companies that I thought were innovative, that I looked up to, that I now get to work with, have become this no culture. And it's like, they got to where they are by saying, let's go innovate and push the boundaries and say yes. And I don't really, I don't have an answer yet for why that changed. But my hope is that if you can keep relentlessly instilling the culture with the same focus that we relentlessly push the external things like sales and acquisition, like you have to be that relentless internally too. Like if you get a no at a customer, you're going to hit them 10 times more on the outside, right? Yeah. Internally, if someone says, no, you got to squash that right away. And yeah. I think people, my guess, my best guess is companies as they grow, they're so wrapped up in all the growth and the external stuff, they forget to have that same ruthlessness internally. Um, something I admire again about Elon, like he just, for better or for worse, people love him or hate him, but like I, I admire he cares so much about the internal culture is we can figure it out. We need to, literally, if we need to get to Mars, mm -hmm. we get to Mars. <laughs> what are you trying to do to protect that culture as you're growing? Because obviously with a 10-person team, it is easier to make everyone on, get everyone on board for that same culture and those ethos than with a thousand-person team. I'm figuring it out is the short answer, right? And like the best I can do today that I've been trying and seems to be working so far, but we'll see, is like all of your leadership team has to truly believe that culture as deeply as you do to the point where it angers them to hear not possible as much as it does you, right? And then anytime you see even the slightest example internally at the company, you need to call it out and fix it right away. Because it does, it's like a virus to spread. It is so much easier to say no than it is to try. Yeah. Um, and you just can't, can't allow that to spread. 
Are you afraid of competitors? You're not. No, I think it's great. I think competition is <laughs> great. It pushes you. Like I said, like at the end of the day, my, my answer is simple. Like, are we solving the problem for the customer? Are we being smart about how we solve for the customer? Are we building defensive moats, right? Like that is important. Like I'm not worried about competitors coming after me because I'll outwork them every day and night, right? The question is, did we build our business in a way that is protectable because it is defensible, right? Like, do we build something unique? Are we creating network effects? Like, I hate using buzzwords, but there's some truth to every, every cliche, right? Yeah. And, uh, and in a business, you'd ask, okay, you got in the door. Why does it now make it harder for the next person to come in the door, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, anyways, short answer is, like, right now, we're just, if you, sounds cliche, but if you're ruthlessly focused on solving the problem for your customer and listening, right, because the problems change. Once you solve that problem, it's no longer a problem by definition, right? So now they have a new problem. Are you expanding into their new problem, right? And I think that's, someone said to me once, and I love this quote, they said, companies often spend so much time worrying if they're staying true to their mission, they forget to ask if their mission is still relevant to the customer, right? And we see a lot, like things change fast and they're changing faster in today's world. So I think that's a really critical question to keep asking yourself is the problem we saw for them a year ago now that it's solved, what is, their, what is their current problem? And how can I be the solution for that too? And that, and that's how Amazon went from books to Amazon Prime TV to overnight shipping to the biggest logistics company in the country. I mean, it's incredible. Can you think of a company that we saw disappear in the last five, 10 years that lost that mission? I think great companies with all the right things can still fail. So I'll start with that, right? Even when you do everything right, you can still fail. It's just, you have to be lucky. That's just as much, just as important as everything else, right? But there are a lot of companies that should have never had success in the first place. And they're the ones who end up, I think, quickest falling out when the market changes. All of that is artificially hyped up by these venture capitalists. You just pour money on things just because their incentive is to deploy money, to raise more money, to raise more fees. (laughs) And that's a dangerous game, right? And so, yeah, look, I, all these companies that have failed for the most part, they were chasing the wrong stakeholders because either there was free money, so you thought you could just grow and not have to think about the core business or profitability or the, or the customer, again, like the customer, customer, or they were started so focused on raising their next round <laughs> that it was just the wrong stakeholder and they didn't build the right business. I hate to use the buzzword, but do you care about work-life balance? Do you have any? <laughs> again, I understand this isn't, I don't believe in work-life balance is a short answer. (laughs) But I don't, because like, the the reason is simple. Like, I can't imagine a life where I have to spend 10 hours a day working. That sounds so miserable, right? But if you like make your work your life, (laughs) then I spend 10, I spend 24 hours a day living, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And it's like, it really is. That's why I just don't understand. Like, I'm not saying to be an entrepreneur. You don't have to do your own thing. But you should, and it's not like, Go do what you love. Like you got to make money, right? But there's a way to make money and do things that you find enjoyable, that you wake up wanting to do, right? That are interesting, just problems to solve or a job that gives you the ability to travel. So like the work is just the path to traveling. Like 
I think in another life, like being a flight attendant or a pilot is a pretty damn cool opportunity. You get to go see the world as part of your job. <laughs> I mean, that's incredible. I was going to say the same. I would be a flight attendant if I could. Totally. It seems exhausting. I talk to them now all the time about like, how is it, you know, when you travel from Dubai to LA, do you stay on LA time or do you stay on Dubai time? Like, Controversial take. I don't believe in jet lag. I think it's fake. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> I've been pretty good about it though. I'm so good with not being that impacted by it. Some nights I go to bed at 10 p.m. Some nights I go to bed at 2 a.m. That's already a four-hour time difference. Like, I, I don't know. Maybe it'll change when I have kids or something. But right now I'm like, I don't believe in jet lag. We have some health experts coming on the podcast and I think yeah, they're yeah, going to yeah. tell you you're absolutely wrong. <laughs> they're, they're, they're not possible people. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to switch gears a little because you are a travel expert. And of course, I need to ask you about your travel hacks. I love traveling. So what do you think people could do instantly to be better with travel? Hack the system more. So the amount of hours that my friends spend figuring out how to travel hack is like unbelievable because it's so complicated. Anytime you have... 50 different blogs, having to keep you up to date on different things just to figure out how to get value, like the system is broken. <laughs> yep. So back to like the whole thesis of how do you make it easy for people who are already overwhelmed and already working really hard <laughs> and paying their life expenses to make it easy to just do the things you want to do, like travel. We've tried to figure out how to solve it with Built, right? So just taking a step back, you know this, but with Built, you said rent is your biggest expense. Why can't you earn points and miles just by paying your rent. You already do it every month. It's your biggest expense. That could take you around the world if you could just earn those points and miles. So that was the first thing we solved. I mean, Built is the first program that lets you earn points and miles just by paying it every single month. And no extra fees on the rent, no, right? You don't pay fees on the rent. It's, it's just a simple thing, how it should be, right? It's not a revolutionary idea. You pay your rent every month on time, you should get points and miles. And so we built the most valuable points and miles currency. You can use it on, you know, I think it's almost like 20 different airlines, one-to-one -one transfer. You can use it to book any flight through a travel portal. You can use it for hotel stays. Yeah, you know, it's a simple concept. I want to pay my rent, earn miles. That's part one. Make it really easy for people to earn enough miles to travel without having to think about it and have a hack and worry about which credit cards they're using for what category and how to, it's just, no one has the, I can barely sit through a TikTok video, <laughs> much less worry about that, right? So that's number one, make it really easy. And you do, with Built, you can earn points on rent just by paying your rent on time every month, okay? Two is then, what do I do with it? How do I get from here to Dubai? How do I get from here to London? How do I get from here to Miami using my points and miles? And God, it's been so hard to figure out, am I getting a good deal? Am I not getting a good deal? Do I transfer to one program to book this airline? Or do I use it through the portal using points, pay with cash? Like, ah. So we tried to just make it simple, right? How do you normally search? If you, were, if you had the money to do it, you would go to the site, search New York to London, and it would tell you all your options. You'd pick a flight and you'd pick the one that's either the cheapest or the airline you like or, you know, the time of the day. It's that simple. We have now made it that simple for people to use their points they earn from paying rent to book a flight without having to do any research and get the best possible deal on the market with no hours or time spent on research. Because it's all on the app? Because you literally go inside your built app, you pay your rent, you get your points, you say, I want to go from New York to London. and We transparently show you real-time award availability on all of the transfer partners, 
plus the pay with points or points with cash. And you can literally look and we'll tell you, by the way, the best way to get to London is to transfer your points to Iberia and use Iberia to book British Airways. And we just show it to you and you just pick which flight you want to take. It tells you the lowest possible points to take that flight or what it is to pay with points as cash. And then you pick the one you want and we show you step-by-step step exactly what to do. And the whole process takes you 30 seconds to pay your rent and one to two minutes to pick the flight. That's, That's insane. It. But isn't it so frustrating too, these airlines are devaluing the points? You know what? The beauty of this type of thing is it's like, they can do that in a world where there isn't ease of comparison mm-hmm. and free market. At the end of the day, like if they want loyalty, they need to create value back to are you creating value for the customer, right? It's like <laughs> the same thing over and over again. And I think sometimes they start to forget who their key stakeholder is, right? And you see that there are, there are airlines doubling down on the value, not just on points and miles, on the experience, on the on-flight experience, all of it, right? It's not just points and miles. It's like, do they treat you well when you check in or do they yell at you, yeah. <laughs> right? Are they going to nitpick at you over the centimeter of your bag, right? Or are they going to let you on, right? Because it's, okay for them and okay for you. I think like airlines, hotels, any industry that forgets that the customer is always right, it's just a slow decline, right? So yes, there are airlines that do that. And by the way, if they're not doubling down in some other way to make up for that, I would probably not invest in that company's stock, right? (laughs) But like the beauty is with something like Built Now, you as the consumer are empowered. You paid your rent earn points and miles. It's a flexible currency that can transfer around where you need it and will make it easy for you to know the best way to get the best value for yourself. That's it. Because I want everyone to have the same experiences that I want to have too. Yeah. And they get to have that option just by paying your rent. That's nice. Because I remember when I first got into travel hacking, you can just spend hours learning on subreddit travel hacking about how to do it. And they're really... And you have to stay up to date too because things change. Like sometimes it's better to transfer to Air Canada to buy this Emirates flight or whatever it is. There's a lot of like roundabout ways to go about it. And if you don't have hours in the day to spend as your hobby to do it, then it's hard for you. And it's it's totally unfair because the people who are working hard and trying to, they don't have, most people don't have the time to do that because you're trying to get your job to make the money to travel in the first place, right? (laughs) It's like this, this crazy spiral. And so- yeah, just making it simple. Solving that has been, this has been a passion of mine. I believe we have helped solve it. I think everyone should try it and give me the feedback if they don't think so, um, so we can fix it even more. Where do you see yourself and the company in five to 10 years? I mean, God, if I told you, if you every six months, I think I was such an idiot six months ago and that there's so much bigger opportunity here. Like at the end of the day, when I think about Built, I think about the company as something that says like, if. If American Express was this company that was like, look, you're rich and you've made it and I'm going to give you a, like, you know, the Trump era gold card to tell everybody that you've made it. Like, I think our generation's a little different. I think we want to do all those aspirational things, but we want to, we need a little bit of, we want help getting there. I want to like life hack a little bit. And so Built's whole thing is do the things you're doing and we're going to make it rewarding to do the things you want to do. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that's it. And so if we do that right, in five years, like I hope built is your most, your way you earn rewards on housing, how you earn rewards on your healthcare, your transportation, your groceries, your everyday life expenses that matter. Like that is what we want to fix for people. And that's what I want to focus on is these areas where people are spending more to live and getting less. 
And can we help you get a little bit more so you can do a little bit more of the things you want to do? So our closing tradition, the podcast is called Erica Taught Me, but really today is all about Encore Taught Me. So what do you want people to walk away from this being able to say, Encore Taught Me this? Look, I think the one takeaway is, I think it's such a, just I'm not talked about. People always want the quick dollar, the quick flip, the quick hustle, and it's just, it doesn't work. <laughs> uh, Built has been five years in the making to have an overnight success, right? And really, I would say that it all goes back to when I first started coding when I was 10 years old. It's been you know, 23 years in the making <laughs> to get there. And it's just, it's like everything else. It's just persistence and patience and focusing on a purpose and you'll get there. Thank you. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Encore Jane. If you're interested in signing up for Built Rewards, I'll leave the link in the show notes. Also, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please take a moment to leave a review. I read every single one and they make my day. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode and I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.